Corinthians chapter 16. That's where our Bible study is this morning. And if you've been with us through the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll realize that it's not a short book. And Paul is kind of long-winded. He has a lot to say, and he has a lot that he really wants to express to the churches that he's planted. But one of the things you've got to realize is that each and every chapter, each and every verse, has something that we can take away, whether you've read the whole book or not. And so, before we get started, I want to talk about kind of what Paul's been doing. Paul... Uh, noticed some problems. He had a letter written to him about this church in Corinth. I've heard guys teach this book and call it First Californians. You know, it's, it's really to any place that has Christian believers in it that are being affected by the culture around them rather than having an effect on the culture that surrounds them. And that happens. Uh, we just read in 1 Corinthians 15 last week that bad company corrupts good morals. You may have good morals. You may be saturated in them. But if the source of your morals is something that's not always there, meaning a relationship with Jesus, then when you get around bad company, those morals will change and you'll kind of blow and be tossed with those who are around you. And so Paul says, hey, you know, you need to be in fellowship. You need to be in the word. You need to be in prayer, spending time with your father. He needs to be the source of all the things that you follow and hold dear. But what he talks about with the Corinthian church is you've got some problems and their problems were bickering, They had problems with each other. They didn't get along. There was division in the church. And the reason that those problems were there was because Jesus wasn't really Lord of all. He was kind of a a side story. They were all gathering together to show each other how great they were, what they had to bring to the table. But Paul writes that they even had all the spiritual gifts that are written about in Scripture. But he said, because you haven't had the motive to use them, be love, love that comes from a pure heart, You're using them to measure up against one another. You're comparing apples and oranges. You're comparing each other with each other, and so you fool yourself to think you're better. But the reality is, is the one who we're to compare ourselves with is Jesus Christ alone. He is our standard. And not to obtain to him to be God ourselves, but to follow in him and imitate his very lifestyle, his very reason for living, which was to please the Father at all times. And so... Paul said, your first problem is that your first love should be Jesus and not the opinions of men, whether they're Christian men and women or whether they're non-believers. But then he goes on and he corrects them very strictly. He kind of gives them a, uh, a rebuke, a strong rebuke, a spanking as it were. He disciplines them. He corrects them very strictly. So that's why it's important to notice that the, at the end of the book, he says, before he closes his letter, he says, I love you. When you chastise your children and you do it in the confines of a relationship with them where they know that you love them, they're much more aptly to receive that correction. And so Paul knows this. And even though he's a hard-driving apostle, he still lets them know, hey, I'm doing this because I love you. I'm for you. I care about your spiritual destination. I want you to receive and to live in the love and the eternal perspective that God's given you but you need to let go of some of these other things, and so I'm correcting you. So here we are in 1 Corinthians 16, and he's answering another one of their questions. Remember, there was a letter written from the household of Chloe where their church... Oh, that's back there. From the household of Chloe where their church had started. 
And so this household of Chloe wrote this letter to Paul to go, hey, we got issues here. Of course, Paul's not surprised because if you've ever been at a church anywhere, every church has issues. It's just a matter of what kind of issues does this particular church have. So Paul corrects them, and, but he also spends time answering some of their questions. Chapter 7 deals with what is marriage supposed to look like? As a believer, we're coming out of a culture that's kind of surrounded by ideologies that come from pagan religions on marriage. What is marriage supposed to be like? How should it be conducted? How are two individual people that are brought together, that are broken, supposed to interact with one another? And then chapter 8 through 10, he talks about Christian liberty. We talk a lot about freedoms a lot in our country. But freedoms are good, but we also have to practice them with a bit of self-control, right? We're not free to just do whatever we want, whenever we want. There's rules about those freedoms. Even within our freedoms in this country, there are laws that we're called to abide by to keep things from getting ridiculous and chaotic and disorderly. So in any society, those things are true. That includes in the Christian church. How are we supposed to practice this freedom that we've received because of our relationship with Christ? How are we supposed to exercise our freedoms amongst other believers in the church, amongst the people that we live with in our homes that might be believers or not? What about among among non-believers in society? How are we supposed to practice our freedoms? And he gets into that. Then in chapter 11, he says, well, how are we supposed to conduct ourselves in church? And so he talks about order in service. How are we supposed to conduct uh, offering? How are we supposed to deal with how we deal with one another and our relationships? And, and this is a very important thing. I'm not going to go over it today. I'm just giving you an overview. But this is all in this book. This book is, it, it contains so much wisdom from the Apostle Paul that it's taken us weeks and weeks to study it. In chapter 12 through 14, he says, what about spiritual gifts? And he starts teaching this by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. In other words, I don't want you to be unaware or unlearned in the practice of these spiritual gifts that God's promised to give you. When he said, when you believe in Jesus, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, which is the promise of the Father, and he will lead you into all truth. And he gave gifts to men according to this spirit so that we could minister to one another, so we could serve one another. So there's the gift of teaching, there's the gift of tongues, there's the gift of uh, knowledge and wisdom, and, and he goes on, the gift of service. And then chapter 15, he says, well, what about the resurrection? What, what does the resurrection have to do with my faith and how I live out my life today? I haven't died yet. What does the resurrection mean? Is it actually a real thing? They were starting to believe what people in their society were telling them, that the resurrection wasn't really true. And Paul said, we studied over the last two weeks, that if the resurrection isn't true, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we're still caught in our sins and trespasses, and we will spend eternity separated from God. So the resurrection is important. And then he talks about, okay, so now that we know that the resurrection is true, and he gave us several people, several witnesses to the fact that it was true, including 500 believers who were still alive at the writing of this letter, who witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ. He had the the scars in his hands and the wound in his side, but he was still there. He was real. They were able to talk to him, touch him. He ate meals with them. So he says, because the resurrection is true, it's proven, what does that mean for us? And they asked, well, how are we going to be resurrected? 
What if we don't die before Jesus comes back? And he answers all those questions in chapter 15. Kind of a little teaser, if you haven't been here for that, to go back and either listen or read it for yourself. Paul goes through ad nauseum explaining it in a way that anybody can understand, but sometimes you've got to do a little digging. So in chapter 16, I'm finally there, we're at the point that we are going to study this week. He talks about three different things. He talks about a collection, and they're asking about this collection that he wrote to them before about. Many people believe that there was a letter before 1 Corinthians, that 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually the third letter he wrote to this church. Uh, They had lots of problems, and so there was lots of communication going on. And Paul communicated with them because he wanted them to do well as a church and to have a good testimony amongst those in their society. So he gives instructions concerning a collection. Verse 1 of chapter 16, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. So he gives them instruction about this collection. This is not the instruction about tithing. And if you're a visitor today, then you're like, what in the world? Every time I go to a church, you're talking about money. I'm not talking about tithing. The only reason I talk about tithing today is because it's in our passage. It's the only time I bring it up. But what I want to say is that Paul is instructing them on a specific offering for a specific group that they want to give to. And it's a group in Jerusalem who at this time was mentioned also in Romans are going through a time of famine and persecution. The early church, when they were started, they started there in Jerusalem, and the apostles were there, and there were 3,000 led to the Lord on the day of Pentecost. And at that time, in Acts chapter 2, it explains that they started basically sharing dwellings, they shared their funds, their finances, and they blessed one another. They became like a big holy huddle, not a commune. In a commune, everybody basically has to give to this one purpose, and they all share. But these people were giving because they wanted to. They wanted to bless one another. They recognized one another as a family in Christ. They were all Christians and believers. And so they they were dwelling amongst one another. They were sharing in their daily bread. And they were serving one another. They were worshiping Jesus together. But here's the deal. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave them a command. He said, I want you to go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And he said, Lo, I am with you until the end of the age. I use a lot of these and those and lows and that because I memorized it in the old King James. But what I'm saying is that Jesus' command was to go. And it wasn't necessarily that everybody's supposed to be missionaries. The command was saying, I want you to, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. Well, they stopped going. They started hanging out together. They depended on one another, and because of that, they weren't interacting with anybody in their culture. They became, what I called earlier, a holy huddle. And so what the Lord did was he allowed persecution. He allowed them to be overwhelmed by people who didn't believe that were against Jesus. These people were still around, the ones who crucified Jesus, the Jews and the Gentiles. And because of that, we have People like Stephen who were stoned in Acts chapter 6. And after that, a great persecution. Stephen being stoned in Acts chapter 6 was like blood in the water for shark week. You throw some chum in the water, the sharks start coming in and they start rallying. They go, hey, there's food. 
We can take care of this. And there was persecution against Christians, those who believed in Jesus, because they wanted to stop this movement because it was taking away from Judaism in their minds. And so because of that, the people that were in Jerusalem scattered many of them, and they went to other places. But in the meantime, there was also believers that stayed there, and there was a famine. And so Paul saw this need. He had traveled a lot. He had started churches in other areas where there was plenty of food. And so he said, hey, let's redistribute some of this wealth. Not in the way of communism, but in the way of brotherly kindness. And so he said, hey, you don't have to give, but here's what I'm going to say. Each of you churches, you owe your heritage as Christians. The gospel came out from Jerusalem because of the disciples and the, the missionaries that came out of that church, maybe we ought to seek a way that we can financially bless them so that we can meet their need since they've met our spiritual need. And so he said, take a collection. But notice how he says to take this collection. He says, on the first day, verse 2, of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Paul didn't want to bring this big, uh, you know, he didn't want to whip the hanky around and swing the cat and, and cry and make an emotional appeal. He also didn't want them to give money because he was well known. He, he didn't want to, to, compulse them, to bring them to compulsion to give because they feel like they had to. He wanted them to give as God would lay it on their hearts. I like that. God gives us freedom to worship. He doesn't force us. He's a gentleman. He never forces our hand. And so in this case, Paul reflects the heart of God and he says, I want you guys to give an offering as God would lay it on your heart. I want you to pray about it in your homes, to store something up, have it prepared so when you get to church, you can give it in the offering plate or you can, here we use an offering box in the back. We don't pass the plate because I don't want one person going, oh, so-and-so gave money, so I guess I feel like I ought to. I've been in that spot before, and I gave because I felt like I had to. But God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a, the word is a hilarious giver, someone who just feels joyfully desirous to just give back to the work of the Lord. And so Paul here says, lay something aside each week. I want you to do this systematically. Make it a part of what you do. Kelly and I do that. Now, here's the deal. Weekly doesn't work for us. I get paid every other week. Okay, so do it every other week. I get paid once a month. Do it then. Do it as you feel called. But what we do is Kelly writes the check. We tithe here just as much as anybody else does. And when we give that, then we take the money out of our check recognize, for, for everything else, recognizing that first and foremost, how much of my money is God's? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? No, everything that I have, I recognize the only reason I have it is because God gave it to me. I, I'm not an engineer at U.S. Tool because I was the best in my class. I wasn't. I got a 1.79 grade point average out of four. I'm just being honest. By God's grace, he allows me to be an engineer at all, let alone to earn enough money to pay for my family. Okay, So I'm a story of God's grace. The fact that I'm able to use the skills and do the job God's given me is all by God's grace. And so recognizing that, I don't have anything to boast about. The money that's in our bank account, God gave it to me. And so he says, well, give a little. Freely you've received, freely give. So he says, as you may prosper. 
that there be no collections when I come, as you may prosper. So the idea is proportionally to how much God provides for you, give proportionally to the Lord. And, and, and think about it this way. I was reading a commentary this week, and there's a proverb, chapter 11, verse 24 in the Bible, that says this. There's one who scatters, yet because he scatters, he increases more. And there's one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. And he wrote this, David Guzik, he said this, No one thinks that a farmer is wasting grain when he scatters it as seed. The more he plants, the more he will harvest. The idea is, is if you get, say you get this much one year and you take a percentage and you scatter it back over your fields, most of it's going to go back and you're going to feed animals, you're going to sell it, but then there's a portion that you take and you scatter it over your field. Well, you don't get any money from that, do you? But the next year there's increase. And because of that, if there's more increase, you take that same percentage or whatever and you use that, you scatter it back, you make more each year. Meanwhile, you're giving a lot of it away to the ground, and you're still making more money every year. And so the idea is that God takes care of us when we give to him, recognizing that it's all his. So he says, let there be no collection when I come. I don't want to coerce anybody by my presence. I want it to be prepared already, because when I come, I don't want people to be stumbled by the fact that I'm taking some money to Jerusalem. But then he says this, when I come, whomever you approve... Not whomever I approve. Paul says, whomever, whomever you choose, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send with the money to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it's fitting that I go also, then they'll go with me. In other words, we don't just give to somebody we don't know and say, hey, I guess it's fine. Paul says, let's be good stewards. I recognize that a lot of your people don't know me. So you guys pick somebody that can take it. You guys pick somebody that you trust. When they come back to you, they can attest to the fact that this money went to the cause that you wanted it to. Many times there are those, there are charlatans, there are people out there who will take your money. And especially if they know you're a Christian, they'll, they'll swindle you. They'll try to get your money and, and they won't want to be accountable to it. Go to the nth degree to find out where it's going. Go to the nth degree to find out, you know, if that's your thing, how much the CEO gets paid. You want your money to go to what God's called you to give to. And if it's not going to get there, then don't give it. And here's another thing. If you don't feel like the, the money that you have is something God's blessed you with, then don't give it. God's not forcing you to give. He's freeing you up so that if you feel like you want to give to the Lord, then you can. There's no condemnation in that. But for us that recognize that everything we have is the Lord's, it's easy to give it back to him because he could ask for all of it, but he doesn't. So, verse 5, we'll move on from the money thing. We're over. It's all good. Take in a deep breath. Let it out. All right. Verse 5, he says, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia. For I'm passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. So Paul is this hard-driving missionary, and many of us, if we lived in that day, might want to meet up with him. But here's the deal. If we just shot him a text message, an email, made a phone call, wrote him a letter, and said, hey, we really want to meet you, here's the way he would respond. Hey, I want to come to you, and I definitely might. You know, that would drive us insane. We like to schedule things. We like to plan things. 
But here's what Paul did. He's talked to us about the collection. Now he's talking to us about how we are to plan. Now he's not meaning to make this a teachable moment, but by the way that he conducts himself and he plans his life, we can draw some, we can glean some from it. We can draw some wisdom from it. Paul says, I will come to you. He says, I'm definitely going to come. My heart is to be with you and to see what God is doing, to recognize and give thanks for his faithfulness. He says, actually, I passed through Macedonia. But (laughs) he says, and it may be that I will remain for a while or even spend the winter with you. So he says, I don't know how long I'm going to be there. That you may send me on my journey wherever I may go. Verse 7, For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. And so what he's saying is, I want to come see you, God willing. I'm going to come see you, God willing. I want to be a part of your fellowship for a while, and hopefully you can benefit me and send me on my way, Lord willing. And so all of the things that he has to say, he prefaces with Lord willing. I say that because in James chapter 4, this is what the half-brother of Jesus had to say when he was teaching the Jewish people, the diaspora, the the cast out, the persecuted group that had been spread. He said to them as he's writing, if you read the book of James, it's kind of like the Proverbs of the New Testament, and it's pretty hard-hitting. He he doesn't mince words. But in James chapter 4, I lost my place. James chapter 4, verse 13, he says this. And I think this speaks to our culture quite well. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, we'll spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes away. Instead, here's how you ought to do it. He says, Instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now, he says, you're boasting in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Now, I think there's wisdom in planning ahead and looking to the future and saying, hey, you know, in in about a year, I think these things could take place, so I'm going to make proper preparations. And we do this, right? Uh, We know that tax time's coming up, and so we start to plan and get all the paperwork together, and we fill it out. And throughout the year, we save receipts on certain things. But here's the deal. That's something we can plan for, right? Every year it comes. And we can also plan if we know that we've been renting for a long time and we want to buy a house. But we cannot necessarily say that when that time comes, we will buy a house. I'm going to do this. Because maybe it's not the Lord's will. Maybe something else will come up. Maybe something major will break in your house. It happens all the time. We can't plan for catastrophe. We can only plan for the known. But we're not God. We don't know everything that's coming. And so what the Lord tells us to say is, hey, here's what I plan to do. And then also at the same time to be open to what God changes it to. Man sometimes makes plans and then God laughs, you know. And there's also a proverb that says, a man plans his ways, but the Lord is the one who directs his steps. And so we also need to be praying about those things and saying, Lord, what do you have for me? And then at the time that things switch up, we'll have peace because we'll know that he's the one in charge. So Paul exemplifies this to this church and to us. 
verse 8. He says, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul gives us instruction on what sometimes God gives us open doors to minister to other people. And in this case, he's planted a church in Ephesus. Now, I think about this a lot because God has given us an effective open door here. That's why we've been here for three years. But sometimes there's adversaries. It doesn't mean necessarily people. It can just mean spiritual warfare. And when there's spiritual warfare, sometimes, not all times, it means that we're supposed to keep doing what we're doing. I say that because, think about it this way. Yesterday we were at Lily Persley's basketball game. And Lily's playing, and she's doing awesome on defense. But there's this one gal, and she's a head taller on the other team. And she is, no kidding, making the boys on her team look like wimps. I mean, I'm not going to mince words. They look like wimps. She was making it happen. She was getting rebounds. She was passing. That's a big thing at that age, right? And she was also making turnovers and scoring points. Well, that was the first period. Well, how many times does it take for one person to make turnovers and points before somebody goes, hey, maybe we should defend. Maybe that person needs to be shut down. It doesn't take many times, right? So after the first period, they regrouped. Next thing you know, they shut her down. She was not scoring. She was not. When she got the ball, there was this panic because there was 18 people on her. Uh, there's probably not 18 people on a team, but you get my, there was a wall. They were holding fast. She was not going to pass. She was not going to score. They shut her down. Well, the same is true in the spiritual realm. When God sends people and he opens an effective door for ministry, they start to score a few points for Jesus. People start getting saved. People start having their eyes open to the fact that they need Jesus and that he is the answer to everything that's been a problem in their life. What's going to happen? Well, Satan's not going to like that. He's going to send out a wall. He's going to start regrouping. He's going to send people in there to stop you from doing what you're doing. I felt like that was a big week for me. I had kind of a spiritual revival of my own personal life this week. I I was like, you know, I've not been praying the way I need to be, and I need to be visiting so-and-so. And God was just laying some things on my heart. He was breathing fresh wind into me. I was getting encouraged. About Wednesday, I got super sick. And Thursday, I worked all day. And I was sick the whole day, but there's a guy off, so I'm like, I feel obliged to be there. And meanwhile, we got this thing coming up on Sunday we want to celebrate. And at the same time, I just feel like we're just sick. And I I couldn't focus anywhere but inwardly. And so I started thinking about, like, Lord, what am I supposed to do? And he was like, just be faithful at home. I'm going to take care of the rest. And he has all week. But there's adversaries. Sometimes when we're sick, it's not just sickness. God's trying to, to strengthen us, and Satan's trying to stop us. But nothing can stop us if the Lord is the source of the reason that why we're doing what we're doing. And so Paul recognized that as well. And he told him, he said, you know, I'm going to stay here in Ephesus until Pentecost for a great and effective door is open to me. And there are many adversaries. That doesn't mean he was going to stop. That meant he was going to regroup and he was going to stay and he was going to hold fast. Verse 10 So all of these, uh, from about verse 5 through verse uh, 12, he's giving them teaching. Remember, he started with collection. Then he's going to talk about how we're to relate to those around us as Christians. He's talked about himself, and then he's also going to talk about Timothy. Timothy was a protege or an understudy of Paul. He called him his son in the faith. 
So he tells them at the Corinthian church, he says, if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I'm waiting for him with the brethren. Now, what you can know about Timothy is he's a guy like me. He's young. You know, the average age in here is probably a little over me. So here's what happens in most cultures today, becoming less and less in our society. Our society says, hey, if you're young, let it rip. And we listen to young people like they are sages. Now, maybe that's not everybody, but it's becoming that way. But in many cultures, and in Paul's culture, they wouldn't listen to you unless you were older than them. And so what Paul is telling them about Timothy is, he does the work of the Lord just like I do. And what he's teaching you, he's solid. He believes what he lives out. And so listen to him, receive him, make sure that your church listens to him because he has a lot to offer. I know he's young, but he has wisdom beyond his years because anybody at any age can have wisdom beyond their years when they have a relationship with God because God's wisdom is beyond what we can find out even if we live to be 110. His wisdom goes beyond years. And so because Timothy had that wisdom, he says, make sure that no one despises him. Now there's a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 that says this. Paul wrote this to Timothy. See, he's told this church, don't despise Timothy, but he also told Timothy this. He says, let no one t-, he says, Timothy, let no one despise you because of your youthfulness, your immaturity. But be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Young people need to be pure. They need to lead an example. I've heard lots of young people say, no one cares what I think. They all want to punch me in the mouth. What's the deal? It's, it's just because I'm young. It may not be because you're young. <laughs> you might just be really immature and they don't want to listen to you. If you will conduct yourself in a way that is willing to give conduct, excuse me, if you'll conduct yourself in a way that is respectable and, and worthy of being, um, well, worthy of not being despised, then older people will see that. They'll see your pattern of living and they'll listen to you. Trust me, I know. God's working on me in this. There are people that will listen to me at work that I'm like, why do they care what I think? But because God has changed me so much from what I once was and I've conducted myself in a way that's pleasing to him, that's who I'm living to please, they're, they're pretty impressed because their standards are way lower than God's. And so he says, let no one despise Timothy. But send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me for I'm waiting for him with the brethren. Now, Concerning our brother Apollos, who is an older believer, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time, when it seems uh, expedient, when he's on his way through. So Apollos is treated a little different by Paul. Paul doesn't say, Apollos, you really need to do this. And Apollos says, eh, I'm not really in. Paul doesn't go, no, you have to go. See, he's a pastor He's an apostle, but he also recognizes that other believers have freedoms. So he says, hey, I think it'd be a good idea if you went. And Apollo says, no, I don't think it's, the, I don't think it's what God has for me right now. But Paul is uh, strong to believe that at some point Apollos is going to be sent their way. So here's the exhortation that 
Paul gives them. This is his closing statement, and then he gives some personal notes. He tells this church in his closing words. Think about this like a, bas- like a speech. You know, I just watched uh, Facing the Giants the other night. And they were getting ready to play their game. And basically, the coach was distraught. They were getting destroyed in the first half. They go into the, the room. I think it was after the first half. And the coach is distraught. And he's like, what do I do? And normally, this is the time where the coach throws a fit, throws things all over the room, says, what are you doing, you sissies? And then basically says, go out there and don't suck. You know, and, and that's kind of how he leaves it. Because he's just, he's upset. But this coach didn't say that. What he said was, hey, we shouldn't have made it here anyway. It's by God's grace that we've made it this far. Go out and have fun. Go out and do what you've trained to do all season. And we're leaving the results to God. And in this case, this is what Paul is telling the Corinthian church. This is what he's saying. He's saying, this is what we're, we're, we're in the game right now, whether you realize it or not. This is not practice. This is real life. This is your faith being lived out. There are no practice days. There are no uh, mulligans. This is where the rubber meets the road. So he says this, watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. These are all military terms. Think about it. Watch. Watch. Be aware. Be sober. Keep your eyes open. Watch for the things that are coming your way that might stumble you. Stand fast in the faith. Hold the line is the idea. You've got a group of defensive backs, and they're supposed to protect the quarterback. All it takes is for one person to step back or to flinch, and what happens? The line's broken, and the quarterback is knocked over. Nobody can score points that way. And so what Paul says here is, hold the line. And then he says, be brave. The only thing that be brave means is don't flinch. Don't be scared. Now, he says that, but there are times in the book of Acts where Paul was fearing for his life. He was afraid. So when you're afraid, when you're discouraged, when you're scared, where do you get your strength from? Do you just muster it up? I want to tell you I've tried to do that before it doesn't work. It's like a deflating balloon. I can't draw any more out of me to have an alternate source. I have a source that, that gives me strength and courage to keep going. That's Jesus. He did it. He lived it out. When he was afraid, he was about to give his life on the cross. Do you know what Jesus did? He was discouraged. He went and he prayed. And in Luke it says he went and he prayed. He was distressed so much that he sweated great drops of blood. He did that because he was afraid. He said, Lord, if there's any way that I could not give my life, die, be brutally beaten, then let this cup of suffering pass from me. But then he prayed a a prayer of submission. He said, but not my will, but yours be done. And then after that, he was resolute. He knew that whatever came his way, God had allowed it to come, and it was for God's glory. And so then, after praying, he was able to stand steadfast because his strength came from the Lord. If Jesus has to pray to get strength, I'm telling you, you and I do too, because he is God. He says, be brave and be strong. He says, let all that you do be done with love. So the Corinthian church, 
Their problem was that they were doing all the right things, but with the wrong motive. And so he says, while you're doing these things, these military terms, watching and standing fast, being brave and being strong, do it in love. Truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. So he says, let all that you have to do be done in love. And that's why we get 1 Corinthians 13. He explained to us already what love looks like. It's patience. It's kindness. You know, he says, uh, love suffers long. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. And it thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. It bears up under all things. It believes all things, hopes all things. And look at that word that he finally uses. It endures. Love never fails. It endures. So it matches what he's teaching them here. Just reminding them what he's already said. He says, watch, stand fast, endure, keep going. So enough on that. Verse 15. He says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such, in other words, to them, and to everyone who works and labors with us. Now, this seems weird to us that he'd all of a sudden start talking about Stephanus. But Stephanus, it is believed, and his two servants, Achaicus and Fortunatus, I think, probably butchering those. He's going to talk about them here in a second. But they were the ones that took the letter from the household of Chloe to Paul, and they're going to deliver it back to the Corinthian church. He's letting them know, hey, these are the guys that brought me the letter, and I'm sending them back with a letter in answer. This letter has been sent through them. It's basically him sealing it and saying, signing the check and saying, I witnessed that this is the letter I wrote, and I sent it through these guys. He says, I am glad about coming the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part, they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours. <laughs> Think about it. They sent this big letter with a bunch of complaints, and Paul needed encouraged because he's also serving the Lord. And so they show up with a letter of a bunch of complaints for the church at Corinth. It's discouraging to Paul. But Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, while they spent time with them, they encouraged. And so Paul says, everything that you lack to send to me, don't worry, they brought it. They brought the encouragement. They brought the, you know, that God is good and all of the good news that's going on, not just the bad stuff. Sometimes it's so easy to focus on the, the few things that are going bad and nobody ever tells you all the stuff that's going good, right? So they did that. They refreshed my spirit and yours. And that's one of the reasons that we need to repeat the things that God has done in our lives. To, to tell the mighty deeds of the Lord. To recount the blessings. The th things that God's done for you this week. That you might just go, hey, God's good. And then go on about your business. Repeat them. Tell other people. Remind them that God's not dead, that he's alive, that he's working in your life. And notice what happened to Paul and what will happen in those lives that you tell these things. Their spirits will be refreshed and so will yours. When you repeat the goodness of God, when we sing God's faithfulness, even just to him, it refreshes us. He says, therefore, acknowledge those who do such things. And in specific, these men. Verse 19. The churches of Asia greet you. 
Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord. These were folks that they knew with the church that is in their house. Aquila and Priscilla, they had a church that they had started in their house. And they were continuing to do so. And they wanted the church in Corinth to know, hey, God bless you. You know, they're greeting you. And all the brethren greet you. And then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, direct application here, don't kiss one another. It's weird in our culture. You know, anybody comes up and gives me a holy kiss, stop. You know, even you, Richard. He'll do it. He'll do it. Oh my gosh, I shouldn't have said anything. Whew. Lord, please protect me from Richard. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. In our culture, it'd be more likely to give a hug. A greeting of affection. You know, guys, don't, don't front, full frontal hug the gals. Side hugs. You know, unless it's your wife. You know, there, there are, are bounds in this. But then uh, it says this. The salutation with my own hand. Paul didn't write these letters by his own hand. He had horrible eyesight. He wouldn't be able to read them. So he had somebody write it down uh, to bless the other churches so they could actually see what he wrote. But he, here's an interesting thing. He says, if anyone does not have the Lord Jesus Christ, excuse me, does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. So that sounds kind of odd to us. Why would you accurse somebody? Well, he says, first of all, the salutation with my own hand, and they'd be able to see his horrible handwriting and go, yep, that was Paul. So he wrote these last words with his own hand. But he says this, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. That word is literally, it's PG-13, damned. Let them be prepared for destruction. The idea is that if someone doesn't love the Lord, and they say they do, let them be separated from fellowship with God. And this comes from, this is the same word that they would use in Jewish writings to describe someone who was under discipline in the synagogue. Someone had sinned, everybody knew it, there would be discipline. And they would say, for 30 days you are separated from fellowshipping with us and you need to repent in that time. You need to change your ways. You need to turn around from this sin. And if after 30 days they didn't, they'd say, okay, well, here's another amount of time. Strike two. During this amount of time, if you don't repent... The third strike was, you're no longer allowed to come back. You're separate. You need to know that your sin separates you from God. And because of that, we're showing you that it separates you from fellowship with us. So Paul's saying, if there's anyone among you who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. And then he says, O Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So he says, number one, we need to judge righteously. Number two, let the grace of God be with you. The grace of God is what we do not deserve that God gives us anyway. And then he says, my love be with you all in Christ. How do I know if I love Jesus? How do I know that? We get, it gets thrown around a lot. I see it on Facebook. If you love Jesus, like this and share it. And then you know someone loves Jesus, right? Well, not necessarily. I mean, anybody can click that thing. So how do you know that you love Jesus? I just want to spend a few minutes on this, if you guys will uh, bear with me. Let's start in our own lives. Rather than saying, how do we know if someone else loves Jesus? Let's start with us personally, because that's what really matters. How do we know that we love Jesus? Well, turn with me, if you've got your Bibles open still. Sorry, I might have fooled you there. John chapter 14. 
I promise I won't tarry on this long. I won't take too long. But John chapter 14, verse 15. How do we know if we love Jesus? Verse 15 says this. This is Jesus speaking. So he kind of lays it out for us personally. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. In other words, keep my commandments, but don't do it according to your own power. Let me help you. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more. Did I go too far? Nope. But you will see me because I live, you will live also. And at that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. (laughs) Seems kind of confusing. But what he's saying is, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. So if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will reveal myself to him. Interesting. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. There he said it three times. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He will dwell in us. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In other words, I didn't make this up. This is what the Father has shown me. So then turn with me to 1 John chapter 5, and we'll close on these verses. 1 John takes it a little bit further. Okay, so I got how do I show that I love God? Well, you can't show that you love God apart from abiding in Him. And then He abides in you, and your life looks totally different than it used to. And it takes time. But there in 1 John, as I mumble around trying to find it, I used to have one of those Bibles with the tabs in it. And frankly, I wish I would have paid the extra 10 bucks to get that on this. 1 John chapter 5, in verse 1. First, uh, John goes a little bit farther. He says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, is born of God. He's been born again. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. Meaning Jesus. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. How do we know that we love God? Number one, we know we love God because we keep his commandments. Number two, we know that we love God when we keep his commandments. There are lots of people who try, and they're not a burden to us. It's like first love. When you are dating your spouse, or if you've ever dated someone that you really, truly love, it's not hard to do all that extra stuff for them. You can't help it. You want to. It blesses you. And that's what he's saying. 
This is how we can know that we love God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not a burden to us. And so, as Paul closes, he says, I love you, and the grace of the Lord be with you. Amen. So he's telling them, I've corrected you, I've disciplined you, but I want you to know that it's in a relationship of love. I'm doing this because I love you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for showing your love to us. We thank you for showing your love to the Corinthian church and revealing that, um, that you love them. Lord, I ask